You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, I guess you could say UFC 259 had a little something for everybody, and maybe yeah, I... maybe some stuff nobody likes to see. Uh, but, you know, we started off on kind of a tear really, considering these prelim fights, just mm-hmm. stoppage after stoppage after stoppage, I started to get that special feeling deep down in my brain's heart. Like maybe we were uh, we were on the verge of, of something incredible here. And then things bogged down a little bit toward the end. I'm not saying it was a bad event. I still think it was, it was a, a very good event. But to you, maybe the question is, did, does this event to you seem like one of the more memorable ones that you've seen in a while? Not even attaching... Uh, signifier like a good or bad, but is this one that you're going to be thinking about, you know, on into the next few weeks and months here? Yeah, I agree with the assessment that there was a little something for everybody. Like if you had somebody who you were trying to introduce them to, here's what MMA has to offer as a form of entertainment. Both good and bad. Yeah, this is a pretty good primer because like you said, you're going to see a bunch of fun fights early on, a bunch of memorable finishes, stuff like that. You're going to get into the big stuff. You're going to be like, well, okay, this one was booked as the first fight on the main card between a couple light heavyweights who can bang, thinking that it'll be fun. And it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, we're going to see some dude roll up in here with the Dagestani murder beard and do, like, put his thing down the way those guys do. Then also we're going to get into the title fights. And you're going to see, you know, one complete mismatch that's over really quickly you're going to see one where shit just gets weird and uh, the the rules are thrown completely out the window this time to surprising consequence then you're going to see some legit high level MMA and some champ versus champ stuff with a surprising result and somewhere along the line a dude is going to get mad at an executive from a goddamn energy drink welcome to MMA this is what we have to offer Yeah, you could make the argument this is what Gus Johnson had in mind that fateful night when he said these things happen in MMA because these things happen in MMA frequently, more frequently than you might think. Uh, And don't you worry, we're going to be talking about Dominic Cruz calling out an executive from Monster Energy Drink at length later in the program because, uh, you know, you, you have an event with three title fights on the main card. You would think there would be a lot of discussion about that. We got far and away the most listener mail this week about Dominic Cruz and his post-fight call-out, which maybe it tells you uh, what the people are thinking. Maybe you're able to put your finger on the pulse, or maybe it's just uh, all these people out here have been listening to this show long enough that they know damn well what we want to talk about. Yeah. Well, and they know they know how the CME three-round structure typically works. You got three title fights here. They know that that's probably the big, big stuff going to get covered in the rounds but they also know that if a fighter takes aim at a guy from a damn energy drink company that's the kind of stuff that the cme was built for frankly 
You're exactly right about that. And as a reminder, you're all listening to the co-main event podcast proper right now. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. But make no mistake, Ben Folks and I are here all week over on the Patreon page, dropping such gems as Wednesday's live chat and Friday's Patreon power hour. Oh, and by the way, we also got the Thursday movie club for the true heads out there, the true heavy hitters. And this week, Ben, as we continue to move through Monster Movie Month, We're going to be watching The Fly from 1986, David Cronenberg film starring Jeff Goldblum as he slowly turns into a man-sized insect. The Fly triumphed really in a walk against 1975's Jaws, which uh, I'm flabbergasted about that, if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I thought Jaws would win this. I kind of thought it would take this swimming away. No pun intended. Uh, Pun definitely intended. Pun absolutely intended. But uh, here you got The Fly, man, just, just stomping stomping all over Jaws to the tune of a 59 to 41% voting outcome. So we will be watching arguably the much scarier fly this week. Do you think that's because too many people felt like Jaws did not count as a monster movie? There was some discussion about that over on the Patreon page in the comments Mm -hmm. to be sure. But as you and I said last week, uh, when we watched The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, I'm of the opinion that a big-ass shark absolutely qualifies as a monster. Well, there there are some definitely who would fall in that camp. You don't think it's a monster movie? I'd like to see you say it to his face. (laughs) Well, we're really just bringing all the goods from MMA Twitter right here to the the CME podcast. You'd never say that to his face. Say it to the big shark's face. And remember... If you really want to support the team, I'd love it if you'd buy my newest novel, The Blaze, wherever books are sold. Publishers Weekly called it an exceptional thriller. I think you would like it. You can go out and grab The Blaze and read it wherever fine books are sold. If you do like it, be sure to leave me a review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor, buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. We got music this week from CME listener and beloved patron Doug Ty, a.k.a. Spider Fighting. He describes his instrumental beat music as stuff that straddles the non-existent line between aging indie dork and backpack boom bap. And we think it's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from it on the show... Check out more over at soundcloud.com slash spiderfighting. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Israel Adesanya invited us all to get the fuck off the hype train in the wake of his first professional MMA loss in the main event of UFC 259. But what exactly did Izzy lose? And how much exactly did Yanni Blackjacks gain? And in round number two... In case you forgot, Amanda Nunez still ain't nothing to fuck with. And in round number three, hey man, we're all for cheating in an MMA fight, but Peter Yawn, he maybe took his Dundasso a little bit too far. I don't know. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from James Helwig, so uh, the ultimate warrior checking in from beyond the grave he Mm -hmm. writes hello good brothers 
Even as a man who has had his share of wild, nonsensical promos, I am baffled by Dominic Cruz's wild call-out of Hans Molenkamp. Is Dominic secretly working for Nas Energy, Bang, Rain, Red Bull, or better yet, Zions? And that's why he called out some obscure Monster Energy rep? Does he think somehow the stars and the moon will align and he'll get to fight with this guy? Also, how is it that Cruz's biggest feuds right now are with the no-nonsense Keith Peterson and Monster Douche Hans Molenkamp? So, Ben, Dominic Cruz goes out there this week in the featured prelim and gets a split decision victory over Casey Kenny. Kind of a big deal, you would think, in the career of uh, the former champion and 35-year-old Dominic Cruz. Gets his first win since June of 2016 when he beat Uriah Faber back at UFC 199. You'd think... Uh, let's keep the focus here on the on the very Dominic Cruz style split decision victory over Casey Kenny, but no, Dominic Cruz going to go out here uh, and call out Hans Molenkamp from Monster Energy and then explain himself. I'm going to put that in quotes, I guess. Explain himself at the post fight press conference, sort of about. It kind of seems like this Hans Molenkamp character is being a nuisance to Dominic Cruz, asking him to comment on his Instagram posts, telling him he might not get his Monster Energy drink sponsorship money if he doesn't do this or do that, which I can empathize with that, man. I can see how that would be super annoying. On the other hand, very, very weird thing to do for Dominic Cruz to follow up this relatively important victory in his life by putting all the focus on his idea to call out an energy drink executive for a charity fight. And honestly, kind of in keeping, as as the Ultimate Warrior notes here in his email, kind of in keeping with what we've seen from Dominic Cruz lately, uh, which is some weird, like his attentions are in weird places, I guess you could say. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I can't be the only one who thought at first we were talking about the little guy from The Simpsons. Okay. I refer now to Hans Molman. Okay, I mean, different yeah. person. I could different see how you person make that Hans mistake. Though. Took me a while, but I figured that out. Also, Dominic Cruz is a 35 year old man, mm-hmm. and Hans Molenkamp, from what I've seen of him, seems to be also a kind of a middle aged man. And we're going to be out here getting mad and talking about each other's Instagram, commenting on each other's Instagrams enough. Things we got to do for the gram on social media, stuff like that. That's what we're all mad about. Cause man, that's, I want, I want a better quality of beef. If that's, if we're going to deal with something where a fighter is mad at a energy drink company executive over some sponsorship shit, I just, I don't want it to sound so lame when I have to try to describe it to somebody. Cause that sounds lame, man. Like this, we're getting mad at each other about, uh, Stuff that people are or are not doing on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, I get if Dominic Cruz is saying that it has real life financial consequences for him, he's mad about it. But you're right. You're in a situation here where the bantamweight title just went up for grabs. TJ Dillashaw is coming back. Things are kind of interesting in that division. And instead, when you get the mic, you're like, I would like to pursue this beef with this guy who's been pissing me off over some Instagram shit. Yeah. Twas a time. That we probably would have considered Dominic Cruz one of the more level-headed and insightful guys in this sport. Like, he's still perhaps the most technical actual fight analyst that the UFC 
routinely brings on the broadcast. Some people think he talks a little bit too much. I've heard him described as the motormouth Dominic Cruz, but I happen to enjoy most of his commentary. I think that uh, he does a good job. And like he is, as I said, far and away, one of the most technical guys out there, uh, clearly a smart guy. And yet in recent months, we've heard him say that he thinks referee Keith Peterson was out there doing it, smelling like booze and dirty strippers to borrow a phrase from friend of the show, Chris Lieben. Uh, We've seen him now pick this fight with Hans Molenkamp, a guy nobody had ever heard of before, unless you are just so deep inside the bubble that you you can't see out of it anymore. Uh, what, what is going on, man, with Dominic Cruz? This just, I mean, this could just be coincidence. Maybe we're, maybe we're having like a, a somewhat warped view of the man here over these last few months, but this just seems like a bizarre turn in the otherwise kind of unremarkable uh, discourse of Dominic Cruz, I guess you could say. He just seems like a much weirder person maybe than we thought. Well, and but the the real result here is that it gets us talking about this, this right. weird thing, instead of Dominic Cruz's actual fight victory, which he went out there against the guy where it seemed like the UFC was putting him in a position where they were asking him to prove that he is still one of the guys in that division. They put him up against the younger Casey Kenny. It seems like a fight with that they're making going, mm, maybe we're feeding the old to the young, the way combat sports loves to do. Maybe we're not, but you it's up to you to go out there and show us that you still got some signs of life in you. And then he goes out there. It's a very dominant cruise-like fight. Maybe, a, maybe he's lost like a half a step, which... You know, he's in his mid-30s now. We don't see too many people staying competitive at that age in that division. He's been through a bunch of injuries, hasn't fought since last year. And so to come out, have a good performance, win a fight in that situation, that should be what you would like our attention to be on. Not this thing about your, your Instagram beef. You know what I'm saying? Far and away, the most listener mail this week. <laughs> <laughs> about Dominic Cruz's call-out of somebody named Hans Molenkamp. Next question this week comes to us from Dak Wasson over on Patreon. Remember, you can join the team at patreon.com slash event if you are so inclined. This week, our guy Dak writes, Since Nunez took no damage and Pena's free after Holly Holm dropped out of their scheduled fight, wouldn't it be pretty badass if they added Nunez versus Pena to UFC 261 in April? That would make three women's title fights on that card. Every women's champion would be competing. A great way to showcase the ladies and maybe pick up some new fans. I know my wife, who normally couldn't give a shit about the fights if her life depended on it, would watch that with me. The MMA online alpha bros would complain about it, but who cares what they think about anything? All three women champs at 261. Let's get it happening. So, Ben, this is uh, scheduled for April the 24th down there in Las Vegas, UFC 261. Right now, uh, Valentina Shevchenko scheduled to defend the women's flyweight title against Jessica Andrade and... Also uh, heavily rumored, Wiley Zhang supposed to defend the strawweight championship against Rose Namajunas. That ha- that one hasn't been officially announced yet. But, uh, you know, Dak has a good point here, man. Amanda, Amanda Nunes went out there and blew right through Megan Anderson. Two minutes and three seconds. We'll talk about that more coming up in the show. But I'm going to go ahead and agree with, agree with him, man. Uh, despite the fact that we roll out here of UFC 259, which went pretty late. Went pretty late with the three title fights down the stretch there, even though Amanda Nunes did her part. Uh, yeah. But yeah, man, I think it would be awesome. Three women's title fights back to back to back at UFC 261. I'm I'm totally in favor with it as long as it 
works for the schedule of the new parent, Amanda Nunes, uh, and if Juliana Pena, who seems down, uh, can make the date. Let's do it, man. Let's set it up. Yeah, the other advantage of doing something like that is, obviously, coming out of another Amanda Nunes domination, people are going, who could she possibly fight to give her any sort of match right now? Juliana Pena has been out here since she beat Sarah McMahon, accusing Amanda Nunes of ducking her, which everybody in the MMA community replied, what? And then, you know, okay, she needs an opponent. We want to go ahead and get that one scheduled, get that on the books. If you book it for the same one that Valentina Shevchenko was on defending her title, if she does successfully defend her title, you know people are going to again revisit that topic and go, look, I know Nunes is 2-0 against Valentina Shevchenko, but she's the only one to give her a close fight somewhat recently. They just fight on the same card. Maybe you can start to build a little heat for a third fight with them. If you can talk Valentina Shevchenko into going up and, and trying that again. And, you know, you, you put them in the same place at the same time. You at least kind of create that opportunity for something like that. Yeah, I'm all for it. Seems fun. I'm, I am generally in favor of more fun stuff happening in this sport whenever we can make it happen. Next question this week comes to us from Maximilian de Rospierre. It's good. Always good to hear from uh, Robespierre. I mean, a couple times now he's written into yeah, the show, right? I'm, I'm surprised he has time for mm-hmm. it. But, uh, you know, maybe in the well, afterlife, things are easier. Yeah. Being dead, I think, kind of clears the old schedule. He writes, Joe Rogan is past his prime so bad. I feel that now that we have tasted the commentary of actual fighters with Cruz, Felder, the Count, and it looks like maybe he was going for Chiesa here in the in the email uh it's I mean, glaring he, he got guillotined so like let's give robespierre a little bit of slack on the spelling okay yeah, okay yeah okay uh it's glaring that joe is outclassed with all the oh's and the screaming he's not gonna say for instance zadong with a left hook but he's gonna go with a non sequitur like zadong clipped him or oh uh look at this please discuss uh so we have gotten a lot of emails this year especially as joe rogan uh, disappeared for a while from the UFC commentary team and now is back, especially now that they are making their exclusive home pretty much at the Apex Arena in Las Vegas. And Joe is over there in Texas, so probably a pretty easy trip for him to get get over to Vegas and, and do the commentary. He doesn't typically do the Fight Island events, uh, but here we are. It's, you know, Joe Joe had an absence, now he's back, and it seems like in that absence, perhaps people started to notice that that at least in the opinions of some people, some of his commentary is starting to feel a little bit dated, perhaps in the way that Mike Goldberg was starting to seem a little bit dated down the stretch toward the end of his UFC career. And I don't normally like to bash the commentary on this show because I feel like it's just really easy to do. You know, commentary is hard work. It's it's tough to do it. It's always yeah, for like there. eight hours too. like it's it's a long damn time to sit there in front of a microphone and talk. It's easy to to kind of nit, nitpick and, and uh, bash the commentator. Same with the referees. Mm-hmm. I felt like the commentary at UFC 259 especially was remarkably weird in a couple of instances, both in the uh men's bantamweight title fight and then later in the main event so to say nothing even of of joe rogan and whether or not you you think that that he's lost a step or the things that he focuses on but just as an example and i know we will talk about this fight at length coming up but like through the first two rounds of aljamain sterling's fight with uh peter yon aljamain sterling 
was pretty clearly winning most of that action. He got he got dropped in the first, but that was kind of Peter Yan's only moment. All Jermaine Sterling was up to that point, kind of messing him up, kind of doing his stuff. Ray Longo was impressed over in the corner. And the broadcast team couldn't bring themselves to talk about anything besides the pace that Aljamain Sterling was pushing and how he appeared to be getting tired. Long before, mind you, he actually did seem to get tired. And it was just very weird. Like, and then at the end, when they when they read the scorecards, they you know, they acted like it was some kind of robbery that one judge would have had Aljamain Sterling up two to one after three rounds. I had him up two to one after three rounds. I thought it was pretty obvious. But it seems like at times, like the UFC broadcast team is just going to pick a uh, thesis and stick with it, no matter yeah. what the heck actually happens in front of their in front of their faces. And you could say they did the same thing in the main event also. I think it was a little more glaring in the main event, honestly, just because throughout the fight, they're still kind of pushing this narrative that Israel Adesanya is like out there picking Jan Blahovic apart. And he wasn't really. And if yeah. you look at the stats, it'll kind of show you that he wasn't really and th- that it was pretty even for a lot of those rounds. I, the Sterling Yawn fight, I was like, I could kind of see what they're talking about because while Aljamain Sterling was throwing a lot of stuff out there, it is reasonable to wonder, can he keep that kind of pace up for five rounds? Right. And then he started to look like it was coming apart at the seams a little bit for him. Like he, like he just seemed kind of all over the place. Right. And so but, like I, if that fight hadn't ended in such a weird fashion, I think. You could make a real good case it would have been even two two going to the sure. uh, to the final round. But that is something we've noted about Joe Rogan before that he, for all his strengths as a commentator, one of the the problems that he has has been a tendency to sometimes latch onto a narrative very early on and then refuse to let go of it no matter what is actually happening in front of him. That once once he kind of gets that in his head, there's also the the kind of weird moment where he's interviewing Jan Blahovich afterwards and being like, you know, you used to be a middleweight, and Jan Blahovich's like, nope, no, I did not. I've always been light heavyweight, and that's the the kind of moment that makes me wonder: Is it possible that becoming a hundred millionaire through his podcast has made Joe Rogan a little less invested in this side gig of commentating UFC events? Because yeah. I could see how something like that might happen. Yeah, and that's not a criticism. I could just see like that would be a natural course of events where you make a whole bunch of money doing this other thing. People know you for that other thing more now, and it's. I'm, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of people who would be surprised to find out. Oh, Joe Rogan also commentates UFC events. I mean, it seems in character, but sure. Like, I I could understand how a fella in that kind of situation might end up putting less and less energy and prep work and attention into this other pretty minor sideline gig that he does mostly because he likes it. Yeah, and he's always, in some ways, been the voice of the fan. You know, yeah. to his, to a certain extent, obviously he's a uh, uh, an accomplished martial artist himself, brings a certain amount of technical acumen to the to the table. But like, he's always sort of been like the 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 voice of the of the everyman, you would say, in MMA. And like, not only did he make a lot of money, but over the past like decade or so, uh, the sport has just become a lot harder to track, and you could even argue less fun to watch on most occasions. Perhaps in these numbered pay per views, kind of being the exception to that rule. But like, if it turned out that that uh, the product didn't have the same kind of hold on Joe Rogan today as it did five or ten years ago, and because he recently made two hundred million dollars from Spotify or whatever that he's not as fully invested as he used to be. I don't necessarily know that that would be a surprise or frankly, if we could blame him for it. Yeah. Uh, 
and so yeah, I think that that uh, you know when contrasted with guys like like Cruz and Cormier and and Felder and and you know people that are that are there week in and week out, sometimes uh, it is a bit of a glaring thing when he when he comes back in the booth. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Shad Rap, who writes, I know you guys will talk about the main card shenanigans, but how about that Kaya or Kai Kara France victory? Talk about Wild and Wooly. Yeah, man. Uh, Kai Kara France and uh, Rogerio Bontorin squeezed a whole lot of living. Yeah, they did. Four minutes and 55 seconds here. Uh, Cara France had the guy draped all over him for a while there, working on a on a guillotine choke, and then he follows up with the uh, a rear naked choke. Oh yeah, yeah I'm sorry, was, rear yeah. naked choke. But he he then uh, uh, stops him, drops him right on his face with a punching combination, and then bedlam, bedlam broke loose momentarily <laughs> in the octagon as like it looked like uh, Kai Cara France was kind of running around the octagon, it looked like he was going to like stand over him for sort of like a ha see what happened sort of moment but like looked like he was gonna punch him again yeah it it did well it was a weird stoppage because he kind of did the walk-off ko thing yeah where he drops the guy and immediately starts celebrating before herb dean gets in there to stop it and from the angle that we initially saw it at i wondered did kai car france successfully bait herb dean into that stoppage by doing the walk-off thing did he get Herb Dean to step in there? But it must be said that when you see uh, angle, different angles of Herb Dean stepping in there and you see Bontorin kind of trying and failing to pass the what-the-fuck test, he's trying to sit up and maybe get to his feet and argue the stoppage, yeah. and he falls back over. And that's, that's the test, man. That's the what-the-fuck test. That's why we have the test. He failed the test, showing that it was, in fact, a good stoppage. But then it is on that same angle where you see him kind of just, like, fall back and lay there on his back. And then you see Car France running there with his hammer fist poised, like he's going to drop it one more time. Bontorin throws the mouthpiece at him later. I mean, bedlam is a good word for, yeah. for what we saw there. And uh, Kai Car France himself, yet another one of these super talented guys from the city kickboxing team uh, over there in New Zealand. He's 5-2 and two now in the UFC overall. Not going to win them all, it would seem, but like really shaping up as kind of a fun guy, honestly, in, in this division. Uh, he's had a couple of, of uh, fun fights here right in a row and the kind of guy that, that, I, um, that I think you want to take the time out to see, take the time to watch. He's, he's, uh, he's establishing himself as this kind of talent that like when you see this flyweight fight on the, on the card, you want to bookmark that one. You want to watch this guy fight. There is a problem, though. At least according to, to Wikipedia, uh, Kai Car France's nickname. You know what it is? I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head, no. Don't blink. That's the nickname. Okay. I don't... I don't know. I don't know about that one. What are well, your thoughts? I mean, maybe this is one of the things that we need to put the people to work on. Maybe okay. the... Uh, I don't know if you know this, Ben, but the listenership of the Co-Main Event podcast has come up with some popular nicknames in the past. Maybe this is uh, maybe this is another opportunity to to give Kai Kara France something we can all agree on. I mean, I don't. This idea is still in the nascent stages. I'm going to say that right off the bat. But having a hyphenated last name seems like it gives us some options. What about if we try to, you know, if you pick a hyphenated nickname to go with the hyphenated last name? 
Wait and don't blink. Is this prepared I, I material? Did you, is this? Are you on? A, are you running a bit here? Did you come up with this before we started? And now you want to get I into mean, your Kai Car France material? It's pretty clearly not prepared material because it's <laughs> it's pretty off the cuff, pretty rough okay. draft as it is. All right. Well, let me hear it. Lay it on me. In, well, I mean, I don't have specific ideas for what the hyphenated thing would be. I just feel like when your nickname is uh, an instruction to people. And I will say here, maybe one notable uh, exception is remember the name, yeah, which somehow works, even even if maybe it shouldn't. But when your nickname is telling me what to do or what not to do, don't blink. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I don't feel like those nicknames have the highest chance of really, you know, taking over as the identity, really being like branded stuff on T-shirts and things like that. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. I mean. Uh- I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna infringe on people's creativity. If someone wants to come up with a nickname sure. for Kai Car France, go for it. Hyphenated or not, I will accept all submissions at this point. So, and if you are gonna come up with one of the nicknames that tells people what to do, I mean, I am going to blink. Like that is a. I don't have a lot of control over that, Kai. Yeah. I don't know what you want from me. It's. I mean, if it's something where it's like, you know, floss your teeth. Like, okay. Thank you. I, I needed that reminder. I, I appreciate you for for telling for putting that in my head. But I I must blink. Yeah. I don't I don't have a choice. Kai, call your mother. There Cara you go. France. Mm-hmm. Don't forget your anniversary, Kai Cara France. That's right. I mean, what if it was uh, don't breathe? I mean, Kai, I just, don't breathe, Cara France. I, at that point. I feel like that guy is maybe an agent of chaos. <laughs> Could be. I don't know what All to right. make of that. We're going to do this the last question, and then we're going to move on here. But this one uh, comes to us from Derry Dingleberry. Well, well, okay. He writes, he or she, I should say, writes, friends, after a UFC 259 card that was part amazing, part weird, and just and part just fucking long, can we keep our hype level strong for Leon Edwards against Bilal, remember the name, Mohammed? So here's, here's your guy, Ben, mm-hmm. next weekend. Uh, kind of feel like we owe it to both those guys to stay frosty. Uh, what do you say? I, I agree completely, man, that uh, UFC Fight Night 187 coming up this next Saturday, uh, March 13th. Uh, it's going to be, I mean, you got the, the main event. We get to see Leon Edwards back in action after a long time and a lot of hard luck trying to get this guy, the fight that he deserves. And at the same time, Bilal Muhammad, uh, in his first UFC main event and a big time opportunity for him to, to really jump the line kind of as a welterweight contender. You also got, uh, Misha Sirkinov in action at light heavyweight. You got the, the dark Lord, Ben Rothwell taking on Felipe Linz. You got Danny Ige on this card, Angela Hill versus Ashley Yoder, uh, your boy, Eric Anders down here on this card. So uh, I don't know, man. This seems like a one that uh, even outside of the main event has some stuff that's that's worth watching. Yeah. But that main event is we we do owe it to those guys to stay frosty for that one because it is that's an interesting fight and got some interesting stakes there. The the whole Leon Edwards just goddamn odyssey he's been on trying to get a fight during this pandemic. You, you got a feel for the guy. But then also... You got Bilal Muhammad stepping in there on somewhat short notice and pretty relatively soon after his own fight uh, where he beat Diego Lima. 
And so it's like, okay, this one seems like it actually is going to be a kind of important one to help figure out welterweight pecking order. Yeah. Uh, and plus, just like stylistically, I'm interested to see how that fight will go. So like, yeah, that's, that is definitely worth getting back up for again, even if, you know, maybe the, the hype meter is a little bit drained after uh, UFC 259. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to make a big deal about Leon Edwards not getting any fights and kind of seemingly getting the short end of the stick over and over again, uh, and then having these these hard luck pairings with Kamzat Chemaev kind of keep getting pulled out from under him, we can't very well then not not watch the fight. If we're yeah. gonna if we're gonna say all that stuff about Leon Edwards, we do in fact we got to pay attention, man, when he's out there actually doing the damn thing. Did you see the the like post training photo that Leon Edwards posted recently? Uh, One of those I things where he's shirtless, standing there in the gym with his fist up. I don't think so. I feel like I would remember that. Seems like Leon Edwards has rediscovered where they keep the weights. Okay. Well, he's been off for a while, so maybe mm-hmm. he's gotten back into a good routine. Uh, maybe one of those where you do the all of the pushing muscles on one mm-hmm. day, and then you do the pulling yeah. pulling muscles. I bet you know? the thing with the big ropes, I bet yeah. he does that. I think he does shakes the maybe. ropes. Yep. He does the shit out of those ropes. I bet he does too. I bet he, there might even be a, t- a big tire somewhere in the workout regimen, mm-hmm. for all we know. Mm-hmm. Could be flipping a tire. Could be hitting it with a sledgehammer. That's the thing about a tire. A lot of uses. A yeah. Lot of different uses At least as, as many tire. as two uses I can think of. Yeah. yeah. And then when it comes plowing time, you know, and you, you need a spare tire, you got one at the gym. Go get it, get it if then, you need the spare tire. You know, you would like it to be in good condition. You show up and you realize that Leon Edwards has just beat the shit out of it with a sledgehammer. That's right. Yeah. You might want to check it. Make sure it's sound before you go ahead and put it on the tractor. (laughs) Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. Remember, if you have a question, comment or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you can do that by going over to the website comainevent.com. Click on the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. sometimes about these super fight matchups and in case in point Jan Blagovitz's fight with Israel Adesanya on Saturday night in the main event of UFC 259 is that not only do you have two uber talented competitors going head to head not only do you have two very dangerous fighters going head to head but there's also an awful lot on the line if you're Israel Adesanya, you're trying to become the first undefeated champ champ. If you're Jan Blagovitz, you're just out there trying to fend off the encroachment of the middleweight champ coming up to light heavyweight, seemingly trying to make his own destiny, trying to take everything you've worked for, motherfucker. So I feel like these, you know, you get these really high pressure situations. Sometimes it's just not going to result in the most action packed fight. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you Jan Blagovitz versus Israel Adesanya was a bad fight. I thought it was a very tense fight, one of those fights where you're kind of on the edge of your seat the whole time, waiting to see what'll happen. But it wasn't an all-out crazy slugfest like maybe we dreamed that it would be. It turned into a pretty technical kind of chess match back and forth, where in the end, maybe the size and strength of Jan Blagovitz and the timely takedowns 
make for the unanimous decision victory here. What was what was your takeaway from this fight that maybe wasn't quite the barn burner that we had dreamed it might be? Well, to me, I thought that this fight was really about Jan Blahovich reminding us that he was in this shit too. Yeah. Because the lead up to this had kind of understandably focused way more on Israel Adesanya because he's the one really going up and waiting, challenging himself and trying to do something that'll put him among an elite group of UFC champions to have won two divisions, two, or two, one belt in two different weight classes. And so I can see why a lot of the focus was on that. But also, if you're Yanni Blackjacks here, he, you know, he could tell which way the wind blows. He knows that... The, Israel Asanya chose this moment when he was champion to come up to light heavyweight, not to try to come do it when John Jones was champion. He knows people were looking at him. You know, he's the underdog headed into that Dominic Reyes fight for the vacant title. He's the underdog headed into this one. People just kept looking at him as a temporary champ who was easy pickings. And then he went out there and he reminded us like, no, he's an actual UFC champ and he's not a pushover for anybody. And, I thought it was really interesting how we see, for one thing, we see that, you know, Jan Blahovitz can do a few different things, but also we see that Israel Adesanya has some limitations, and especially when he's fighting someone where he doesn't have that big height, reach, and range advantage, some of those limitations become a little more apparent. Yeah. And, you know, Jan Blahovitz was just right there with him for most of the fight, and then really, I thought, intelligently use his takedowns and ground control in those final two rounds to kind of pull away and to make it clear that he had won that fight. Yeah, it was um, shades a little bit of Max Holloway moving up to lightweight to fight Dustin Poirier to me, where in the lead up to that fight, almost all of the press was about Holloway and we were all imagining the brave new future that he might have at lightweight and all the potential matchups. We were kind of doing the same thing for Israel Adesanya, albeit mostly focused on a potential second super fight with John Jones. And then Jan Blahovich, as you said, reminded us exactly who he was and the legendary Polish power and don't overlook the man with the suicide rope, let alone the, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30 pound weight advantage here by the time we finally got in the cage. At this point, Ben, Jan Blahovich is nine and one in his last 10 UFC fights. He's got this win, obviously, over Israel Adesanya. He defeated Dominic Reyes. He beat Corey Anderson. He, he, he defeated a fair number of middleweights. He's got Jacare Souza and Luke Rockhold on here. Maybe that's what gets Joe Rogan, uh, confused at times but uh yeah man like i don't i i I come away with this fight honestly thinking like man i would i would actually like to see jan blahovich fight john jones like i don't think he would be the favorite and like obviously john jones has yet to meet his match at light heavyweight but just considering uh the razor close uh situations against dominic reyes and tiago santos in his last couple of fights like I think it would be fun as hell to see the 38-year-old uh, Jan Blahovich, who seems to keep uh, exceeding our expectations and proving us wrong and is on this incredible run, fight John Jones. And I, I wish that was in the cards. But at this point, uh, it doesn't necessarily seem like that's going to happen. How do you look at Jan Blahovich now as this 205-pound champion who, in your own words... Uh, you said it was viewed as kind of perhaps easy pickings, a, a transitional champion, just a temporary guy there. And at this point, he just keeps going out there and proving that he's maybe better than we give him credit for time in and time out. Yeah. And I mean, I can see why it's hard for people to come around to the idea that he might actually be a good champion. who's going to be there for a little while because we got used to John Jones. 
as the guy in that division for so long. And uh, a level of dominance that is so hard to achieve in the UFC over years and years and years. And so then when he leaves as this guy who can seemingly do it all and a super creative and just seems like kind of a next generation athlete for this sport. And then Jan Blachowicz comes in and he doesn't really wow you with any one thing necessarily. He yeah. can, he can hit you. He can knock you out if he catches you right. But then so can most guys at light heavyweight. You know, he, he can grapple a little bit. You know, he, he can submit people. He can take you down, stuff like that, but he's not like a, one of the greatest wrestlers or greatest grapplers we've ever seen in the division by far. So people look at him and they just think like unimpressive. And yet you see him put together a whole performance like this against Israel Adesanya and do it pretty smartly too. Like that, that's some, some pretty good fight IQ in there. And I, I can understand why, like I heard that comment that Dana White made where he said that when he went to put the belt on Jan, Jan turned around and looked at him and said, you don't believe in me. Yeah. And Dana White was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, I didn't say anything. Uh, but you can absolutely see where Jan might get that impression about everybody, basically. Yeah. About the truth. whole MMA world. Speak your <laughs> yes. truth, Jan Blahovich. I'm digging it. Yeah. Man. Yeah. But you know what? And I think he, he earned a lot of respect coming out of this weekend and people will be looking at him a little differently and also to win that fight and to turn right around and be like Glover Teixeira deserves the next title shot like I won't defend it against Glover because he has earned that and not trying to talk his way into some big money fight you know not try to like just shout at somebody who he knows isn't going to fight him try to look for the next like, easiest payday but instead to be like Glover is the legit number one contender bring him here I'll find you know that fight's not gonna exactly be a record setter in terms of pay-per-view buys or anything whenever it happens right. but i appreciate the guy being like hey that guy he got next yeah i will fight him it's a little bit of breath of uh, fresh air from Jan yeah. Blahovich to do that instead of you know being a guy who wins the title and then understandably as we've seen a lot of people do like try to take the financial horse by the reins there and, and get himself into a, a a big money spot by contrast if you were the ufc man you were this close to having a super fight sandwich with John Jones as the meat because you could have had him up there against the Stipe Francis and Gano winner at heavyweight. You could have had him at light heavyweight against Israel Adesanya. And by comparison, Yanni Blackjacks versus Glover Tashira, which is going to be a dope fight for the hardcores, is not the same kind of promotional entity as you might have had otherwise. But let's turn our attention here for the moment to Israel Adesanya who seemed to take this loss, you know, as, as well as could be expected. Like we always give Conor McGregor these props for the class that he exudes, at least on fight night after the, the losses, you kind of got to do the same thing for Israel Adesanya who seemed to, to handle this pretty well. Uh, and at the end of his time at the press conference invited anyone who was doubting him to get off the hype train because he's going to keep moving forward. And in his own words, we're going to have a lot of fun. How much, if any, do you think, Adesanya loses in your eyes here with this, you know, didn't look outclassed, didn't look like he didn't belong there. Just uh, once again, we are reminded that there are perhaps weight classes for a reason. And uh, maybe he should, he's a natural 185 pound fighter and he should stay down there where he has the physical advantage over most of his opponents. Yeah. I mean, hey, obviously it would have been better to have won. As, as we are the, the kind of insightful analysis we're known for on this podcast, we like to say it's better to win than to lose. Yeah. Yeah. In many cases. Yeah. <laughs> In almost all cases. 
In better to cases. win the fight if you had the choice. However, if you got to lose the fight, you know, he handled it well. He he went up there. He challenged himself. Like he said, you know, he dared to be great. He fell short. I, I think that you could see some of the things in this fight that you could also see in some other fights where, like, with Anderson Silva even, with UL Romero definitely, where when he has to worry about somebody's power, when he can't rely on just kind of catching them on a counter by, while they're struggling to deal with how to get close enough to touch him, when he has some of that stuff taken away from him, that he maybe doesn't have as many answers for that as he needs. Also, when he gets taken down by a guy who has a 20 plus weight, 20 plus pound weight advantage on him, he just kind of got smushed and couldn't do a whole lot about it. Like there are deficiencies in his game. And yet I can't really get mad at the guy for trying to go do something big, for trying to, to, to go up there, weigh in 200 pounds uh, for a light heavyweight title fight and uh, to give it his best shot. Like you could argue that, he maybe lacked the sense of urgency that he needed to have a little later in that fight, or that a lot of his success at middleweight is built on just the the way the the size and the bodies match up down there. But fine, I mean, you could, you could say that about a whole lot of people. We might end up saying it about John Jones by the time his move up to heavyweight is over with. Yeah. I, I respect the guy for going up there and giving it a shot and not being afraid to to test himself that way, and for just handling the defeat well. Just being like, you know, first loss, didn't cry about the decision. Didn't, you know, make a bunch of excuses or anything. Just like said, hey, like, he, he beat me. I lost. I'm going to go back down to middleweight and continue dominating that division. That's the best you could do there. Yeah. You got to give him the respect, as I've said all along here, for doing the thing that we're constantly asking the great ones to do. He tried to do it, and I don't really think that there's a ton of shame in, in the loss or losing the way he did. The scorecards were a little bit out of whack. I think you could make the argument, but... uh Israel Adesanya, he 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 gave it a shot, and and like you got to respect him for it, as far as I'm concerned. All right, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. I was actually going to do uh, Jan Blahovich turning around and saying you don't believe in me to Dana White as my Are you fucking kidding me? But uh, you know, luckily I brought several options here. Uh, okay. I we, this this might be what you were planning to do too, because I feel like it's it's right in your wheelhouse. But your guy Tito Ortiz. Uh oh. He's out here. Uh, he's out here doing his best Gina Carano impression. I guess oh, you no. might say with the uh, with the social media posts. In fact, posting some of the same anti-Semitic memes that got Gina Carano fired from her gig on Star Wars. Now, really? Huntington Beach Mayor Pro Tem Tito Ortiz putting some of these same things on uh, on Instagram or his Twitter, and uh, also going to be comparing people to wear masks during the pandemic to uh, people who supported the Nazis in Nazi Germany. Wow. Are you you fucking kidding me, Huntington Beach Mayor Pro Tem Tito Ortiz? First of all, are you fucking kidding me? Second of all, we could, if we wanted to, just dedicate the are you fucking kidding me segment on this show each week to Tito Ortiz. Yeah. And we could probably each show up with a different one. True. We wouldn't have to do the same one. Like, it just seems like he never takes a day off, man. It's the Tito Ortiz Memorial Are You Fucking Kidding Me section of the show. We'll keep that in our back pocket for when the time comes. Well, then my Are You Fucking Kidding Me features probably the guy who was second in the running for the most frequent appearances on the Are You Fucking Kidding Me segment of the show. And that is your guy, UFC President Dana White. It's a star-studded affair here this week. 
talking about news that the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, has opened up that state for business and said Texas is open. And Dana White was saying how he would love to go down there and do a sold-out event that he would, if he could, move UFC 260 later this month uh, down there. Here's his quote. The governor's claiming that Texas is open. I talked to him. He wants to open Texas. He wants all businesses to resume. But these mayors in these towns feel differently, so it's unfortunate. The governor's announcing that Texas is open. Texas isn't open. As frustrating as it is, I'm ready to go. I will move March 27th to Texas today if one of those places would open, but they're not doing it. But at the end of the day, oh well, we'll all just stay here at the apex. Are you fucking kidding me? You guys, we're, we're close. We're close to being through this thing. Yeah. We're not quite there yet, but we're close. The end is in sight. And you want to have a sold-out event at an arena in Texas? Come on, man. You've got this. You've got the apex just sitting there. It, it, you had the perfect timing. You kind of accidentally had the, the perfect time to build your own arena in your home city. You got it. You can use it every week. It's perfect for you. And you just can't wait to pack people into an arena in Texas for a super spreader event. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. You fucking kidding me. It's amazing. So a lot of people, it seems, are going to make it all the way through this pandemic and have learned nothing about it yeah. at all. Yeah. Some people appear to be on a mission to see how far we can spread it around. Like, we got these vaccines now. Let's just keep spreading it around. Maybe we can get a variant that will render those vaccines useless. <laughs> I have to start all over again on this shit. You fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. gets me about Peter Yon's illegal knee straight to the dome of Aljamain Sterling in round four of their men's bantamweight title fight. It's the long pause. The long time he had to think about it. Not heat of the moment, you're just firing off shots and you don't realize that the guy is down. He's standing there, he has an ample opportunity to see that Aljamain Sterling is a downed fighter. Referee Mark Smith says, he's down. Straight up tells you. There's a long, I would, might even say a pregnant pause. While Peter Yon seems to be standing there trying to think of what he wants to hit Aljamain Sterling with next. And then he goes with like the one thing you can't do there. Just knees him straight in the fucking face. Yeah. And that's it. Then, I mean... The other thing that's really telling about it to me is that he knees him in the head. Aljamain Sterling falls backward. Peter Yon doesn't move to follow up there. You know, the referee gets in there pretty quickly, but he, right after kneeing him in the head, he just kind of like steps back. It's like he knew that he wasn't supposed to do it, but it was just such a great opportunity to hit the guy in the face with something you knew would hurt him, and he couldn't resist. And yet he seemed to know right as soon as he, he did it that he had himself a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, credit referee Mark Smith for uh, 
at least holler and stop in an authoritative and, and gruff manner, which I think is what caused Peter Yan to, to back off a little bit there. And also, let's not get too far into this before we give our, our propers to uh, intrepid investigative reporter Habib Nurmagomedov, <laughs> new uh, UFC sideline reporter, who's going to be bringing us all the scoops from around the octagon, letting us know that, uh, that Peter Yan asked his corner if he could kick him, and the corner said yes, and so he did which seems like a failure on a lot of levels from fighter to coaches to every, and everything in between. And especially in this spot where you had won the damn fourth round, man, you're like 20 seconds away from heading into the fifth round where all Sterling is clearly tired. It's either two, two, or you're up three, one. There's, there's no real other score that makes any sense if you're Peter Yon and, and you do this. I can't even explain it, man, because I don't think that he did it in a malicious way, knowing consciously that he was breaking the rules because it doesn't make any sense for him to do that. But, but he did it. And so he's no longer, at least for the time being the UFC bantamweight champion. Well, you, you could hear when they released the corner audio and video, you could hear at least one of his cornermen saying, just punch, hmm. like telling him he's down. Like, and the thing, like, I, that's what gets me is because he just had so much time to sit there and realize that he's down and to think of something else to do. And I'll say right off, I also hate the downed fighter rule. All the stuff, I mean, we tried to make it a little bit better by changing the unified rules. Even, of course, not everybody accepts the changes to the unified rules, so that just makes it even more confusing about what constitutes a downed fighter in what places. And if I had my way, we'd just get rid of that rule. You would be able to knee the head of a downed fighter, even kick right. the head of a downed fighter. Like I, I think that it it makes for like a better all around fight. I think that it changes a lot of the grappling elements where people are, like, have to have something else to think about when they try to shoot in on a double leg and get stuffed. Uh, and I don't think that it's significantly more dangerous than any of the other crazy stuff we're doing to each other within the rules inside these cages. So. If I had my way, we would change that rule. Sure. But if we all know what the rule is now, and we both agree to those rules, Aljamain Sterling, like, in that situation, if you're Aljamain Sterling, if you know you can be need to the head there, you you don't stay there, probably. Right. Like, yeah. he definitely was not getting up because he knew Peter Yan is standing there waiting to knee you as soon as you are up off the canvas again and as soon as it's legal for him to do so. So he was staying there a little beat extra trying to figure out something, that, like a next move to make, and that's when Peter Yan just went ahead and need him anyway. And it's like, if you if we're playing under those rules, then you have a right to re- expect those rules will be respected. The thing is, afterwards, you as soon as I saw that knee land and Aljamain Sterling crumple over on the canvas, you know what's coming next. As a veteran MMA viewer, you know that we're going to do the thing where everybody's going to be standing around, kind of pressuring him to continue. At least we want to see if we can get the fight going again because the officials there don't want to have to make that decision. They don't want to have to stand there and be like, okay, first ever time we're going to see a UFC title change hands to the disqualification. And yet you're also looking at Aljamain down there and going, you should not continue because you're clearly very hurt from that blow. Even the people who are thinking, oh, like he's playing it up. It's like, dude, he got kneed in the head really hard. If that had happened in the course of regular legal action, it probably would have set up like a finishing sequence. 
Yeah. And to ask him to get up and continue after just like a few minutes break to collect himself is to ask him to just let the guy get away with it and let the guy compromise his ability to continue on and be successful in that fight uh, with what, like a, a point or two deduction? It, like, you know, you could tell just from his immediate reaction that he was not going to be totally okay after that knee, that it was definitely going to have an effect. And yet it then knocks over these dominoes where it puts everybody in these situations that they don't want to be in yeah. and it ends up in a total mess. And every single time it verges very close in this sport to blaming the victim. Like yeah. all Jermaine Sterling is the bad guy or something because Peter Yon decided to cheat and is going to lose his bantamweight title up to, and in my opinion, including the idea that we have to have an immediate rematch now. Like, you know, they have to do it. They have to have all Jermaine Sterling and Peter Yon fight again, but it's really hard for me to sit here and justify it that the guy who blatantly cheated and lost his title should get the immediate opportunity to get it back uh, doesn't make any damn sense, except that we are conditioned in this sport to now not consider Aljamain Sterling to be the legitimate champion. Maybe because of how the fight was going and it seemed like he was wilting a little bit down the stretch, but we honestly don't know what was going to happen in those last five minutes. But just like because we didn't get a decisive victory in this fight, we're going to regard and all Jermaine Sterling is going to regard himself perhaps as sort of an illegitimate champion and is going to insist that we come back and do this again. And the only upside for him. And you know what? Shout out to Daniel Cormier for at least putting these words out there on the live broadcast that if we do it again and all Jermaine Sterling is the champion, he will get a cut of the pay-per-view money uh, for, for wherever they happen to slot that thing, uh, you know, event wise, but like, it's just it's shitty in this sport and i don't know what we can do to change it that the guy who gets fouled the guy who gets uh hit with an illegal blow seems to suffer almost all of the negative consequences and and this is like one of the only times i can even think where there's a positive consequence that aljamain sterling gets to be the champion and he will get more money if he's going to fight peter yan again yeah but i mean i i can understand why aljamain sterling would feel like hey I, this when i had it in my my on my vision board about what I wanted to manifest out there, and I saw myself as UFC bantamweight champion. This isn't how I saw it going down. Sure, like, that's I, I totally get that, and I get why he would need that fight again to really feel like he's the champ. And honestly, there there were some troubling signs for him a little later on as this fight went. I don't know if some of it was like the pressure of the big title fight, but he seemed just a little more frantic. Uh, especially in the like the third fourth round than he usually is like he's just he seemed like he's kind of off balance like he's just kind of all over the place and so if you're Osman Sterling maybe not the worst thing in the world to get another chance to come in there collect yourself now you've seen what Peter Yan has to offer and you get to go in there and try it again i will say before Peter Yan went and just fucked the, everything else up for himself i'm impressed with that man's trips that's a yeah. guy you know, that like basically he, his best weapon were those he takedowns. Can he can find kind of any position to just foot sweep you and put you down if you want. And especially for a guy who already seems like he is getting a little tired from the high pace that he's setting, sweeping him, sending him down to the mat, making him pick himself back up again. Not the worst strategy you can have. No, I Illegally agree. kneeing him in the head, though, not the best strategy. Right. And to see him do that stuff against Aljamain Sterling, uh, an accomplished grappler himself, was was equally or even more impressive, I guess, to see him 
be able to pull off those sweeps. I was also pretty impressed with Aljamain Sterling through uh, 20 minutes. Like obviously he had started to to back, slack off a little bit, wilt a little bit in those in those final 10 minutes, but like he he came out early in this fight and was setting the pace and was seemingly doing all of the stuff he needed to do for to complete his game plan, which, you know, given what we heard from Ray Longo in the corner between rounds was probably to, uh, you know, kind of smother Peter Yan with activity to kind of keep him moving back and to, to throw as many techniques as possible to keep him from getting into a boxing rhythm. I thought that that was working. Uh, we had the one instance in the in the first round where Aljamain Sterling got dropped with a punch. But, you know, he, he recovered. He, he kept going. Uh, I thought he was in control of the fight, at least through the through the beginning part of it. Obviously, Peter Yan took over kind of in the fashion that we have be, become accustomed to seeing from him in the middle rounds. But damn, I was really excited to see that last round and yeah. uh, to see what what might have happened there, because if Aljamain Sterling manages to uh, to harness his energy a little bit to come out with maybe more activity in the in the fifth, it could have been anybody's ball game headed to that decision. So uh, I won't argue with the the idea of watching these guys fight again. It just seems like a shame that, uh, you know, we have to do this kind of do over to to make Aljamain Sterling prove it now because he he won via DQ. The first title change, right, in terms of yeah. DQ. And people are out here saying they don't think the title should change hands on a disqualification, which is it sounds cool when you say it until you think about it for like 10 minutes. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. If I think that I am on my way to losing a decision that will cost me my title, yeah, that's when these these bad boys come out and I just right. I gouge the hell out of here until they finally. Plus, when I heard people talking about like, no, the title can't change hands on a disqualification, and I just wanted to be like, that's professional wrestling you're thinking of. Yeah, you're thinking like, of the Royal Rumble, guys. <laughs> like, a title also can't change hands on a countout, but uh, not really relevant here, I think. Yeah. All right, uh, let's go ahead and uh, wrap this up and, and head into round number three. We'll start that right now. Is Amanda Nunes the best fighter in the world, regardless of weight and regardless of various men's and women's divisions? Well, I mean, when you think about it, it's just in terms of facts. She's a two-division UFC champion who actually defends her belts in both divisions and just smashes anybody they can bring in there. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of seems like she is. Yeah, the UFC, in very UFC fashion, splits its pound-for-pound rankings into men's and women's. And, of course, Amanda Nunes is the women's number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world, followed by Valentina Shevchenko, Wiley Zhang, and and Rose Namajunas. But if you just look at the men's pound-for-pound ranking, number one, you still got uh, intrepid investigative reporter Habib Nurmagomedov ensconced at the top position. Number two is John Jones, who we haven't seen fight in a damn long time. Number three is Israel Adesanya, who just lost. Number four is Kamaru Usman, who obviously just successfully defended the welterweight title a couple months ago, or a month ago. Uh, You can't tell me that Amanda Nunes rightfully doesn't belong up there among those names, at least in terms of respect, especially if we're having a completely uh, 
made up farcical conversation like pound for pound great she is equally as good as any of those fighters and in fact among her own competition you could argue even more impressive because she went out there against megan anderson on saturday night and just dominated in a way that that it was was super impressive i saw the meme online afterward of a, a grown cat swatting a kitten and just having the kitten fall over and i was like yeah that's about right that's what it looked like out there uh, to see her, you know, dominate Megan Anderson to the extent that she did. Is it me or did Megan Anderson kind of walk through the curtain looking like maybe she was worried? Yeah. Maybe she wasn't 100% sure she wanted to be there. Yeah. I mean, you talk about people looking frantic. She looked uh, pretty unnerved, especially as this fight got underway. Uh, she just looked like she, she, she didn't really, I mean, she didn't have time to get into a rhythm. Obviously the thing only goes two minutes, but, but like, yeah, she looked pretty scared, uh, throughout or at least uneasy. And I mean, maybe you should, if you're going to go out there and yeah. fight Amanda Nunes, who at this point has not lost since September of 2014, when she was defeated by Kat Zingano back at UFC 178, nothing but a string of wins in two different weight classes for Amanda Nunes since that. Yeah, I saw uh, uh, my colleague Sean Alshadi pointing out that her streak, like since the last time that she has lost, has now lasted longer than Ronda Rousey's entire MMA career. Wow. Like, that's just complete dominance on Amanda Nunes' part. And it's one thing you could see Megan Anderson throughout fight week kind of trying to talk herself into it. Like she's in these interviews saying like, oh, you know, like, hey, I know everybody thinks that she's invincible, but everybody looks that way until they're not, until somebody goes out there and beats them. And you go, okay, there's there's some logic to that. And then by the time she got out there for fight night, it looked like she had lost faith in that. And and granted, it's not a ton to go on. If you're trying to talk, I don't care who you are at this point, if you're trying to talk yourself into believing that you can go out there and beat Amanda Nunes, what do you tell yourself? Do you just tell yourself that, shit, she has to lose eventually, and why not me? You know, like one of these times she's got to slip on a banana peel, maybe it'll be me in the cage with her when that happens. Because otherwise, she's just kind of terrifying. She has such tremendous punching power. She can take you down. She can wrestle you. She can beat you on the ground. Like she got Megan Anderson down here and could have finished her any way she wanted to. Like she could have just kept punching and finished her there. Instead, puts on the submission, finishes her pretty quickly there. It's just she looks like she can go out there at the weight class that's not even her natural weight class and do pretty much whatever the hell she wants. Yeah. And, uh, as we said in listener mail, obviously we had, uh, Juliana Pena was 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 online this weekend. She's going to call out Amanda Nunes, and uh, maybe we're going to get that fight. But it's really hard to envision anyone at this point kind of coming along, seemingly sort of out of the blue. I think is how it would seem to uh, to defeat Amanda Nunes at at either one of these weight classes. And uh, you know, she's really the only person to have been allowed by the UFC to carry on as, as a two division champion, as long as she has, because it doesn't necessarily feel like she's holding up either of those divisions by doing this. But if she turns around and fights at women's bantamweight next, and, and, you know, I don't know if we would get a quick turnaround for UFC 261 or not, but regardless, God damn it, man, how impressive to see any athlete compete at two different weights 
and do the necessary stuff that you got to do to not only stay sharp and prepare for all these opponents and fight the best people that they can possibly find for you to fight, but also to sort of manage the weight cut situation and be able to, to like be a legitimate woman's featherweight, fight at 145 pounds, and then turn around and do the weight cut to fight at 135 pounds. Oh, and by the way, like you just have a new baby at home too. And so, uh, you know, things are getting busier and more complicated on the on the home life end of things as you and I can both attest. Uh, so just like an impressive situation for Amanda Nunes in all facets and also that she just seems like a, a remarkable and and good person also considering what we've seen from her. It's amazing. What she does is amazing. Do you think that this could be a sort of inadvertent death knell for the women's featherweight division in the UFC. They haven't seemed terribly committed to it at any point, especially after Chris Cyborg was gone. It seemed like they only created the division, hoping that you could make something out of Chris Cyborg there. And then Amanda Nunes goes up and beats her. Cyborg ends up in Bellator, although still showing up with the Cyborg RV for uh, UFC 259, it seemed, based on scene reports. But as you said... She's not holding up either one of these divisions because she's basically cleaned them both out. And right. we're just trying to look for anybody that we can find who seems like a fresh challenge for Amanda Nunes. And it seems like, you know, Joe Rogan is on there on the broadcast being like, what are the rankings like at Featherweight? And they have to have John Anik tell him, there aren't any, Joe. Like, haven't ever really been any at yeah. Women's Featherweight on the, for the UFC website. And so it's like, do you think that maybe something like this is all the reason the UFC needs to go, you know what, we... Nothing has really happened for this division, and we're not that committed to it. Why don't we get rid of it? Or do you think that being able to promote Amanda Nunes as the two-division champion is good enough to just keep it around and just see if somebody pops up there? Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily see a glaring need to discontinue the women's featherweight division unless it is causing you some manner of financial hardship, which I can't imagine that it is. Uh, You might as well just have her hold on to those two belts and kind of do a sort of catch-as-catch-can thing in terms of finding matchups for her at 145 pounds uh, and mostly have her defend the Bantamweight Championship. But you're right. It just, you know, now that Megan Anderson has been so easily dispatched, it doesn't feel like there are a ton of people there at featherweight for her to fight. You know, you think about recycling Holly Holm, you think about Jermaine Durandamy. It's like there's not a lot happening there. But at the same time, if it costs you nothing to just have that, division and have her hang on to that belt i don't necessarily see a like an urgency to to get rid of it yeah yeah all right uh let's go ahead and do just saying stuff and then uh we will get out of here for this week ben what is your just saying stuff well jen i don't know if you caught this moment on the broadcast where uh tim elliott is having a conversation with his opponent there uh he, him and Jordan Espinosa are down there on the, the mat. He's grinding his elbow into the guy's face. And then Tim Elliott starts to tell Jordan Espinosa about how he received messages online from, I don't know if it was from the woman herself, but from somebody telling him that Jordan Espinosa had been accused of assaulting a woman he knew in like 2018. And Tim Elliott said afterwards he didn't mean for that part to make the broadcast, that he didn't mean for people to hear, that he just wanted Jordan Espinosa to hear, and that he was he, it was a thing he was upset about, and that made him take the fight a little personally because he wanted to go in there and beat him up. I guess I'm just saying, imagine if you did something bad in your life, and you're in there, and Tim Elliott is beating you up, and it's, you're already kind of feeling like this is a nightmare scenario. 
You're, you're getting beat up here on TV by a pretty experienced and accomplished MMA fighter. And then as he is grinding the point of his elbow into your face, he kind of looks you in the eyes and says, oh, by the way, I know what you did. I'm just saying like that is that is an, a literal horror movie right there. That's a yeah. nightmare. Yeah, I I'm suppose it's it's hard to feel bad uh, for Jordan Espinoza if the reports are indeed true. Yep. Mm-hmm. But you're right. That is that is kind of a uh, kind of a nightmare scenario. I suppose. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. This week, Ben, I'm just saying. Our guy John Jones went on an emotional journey on Saturday night. Okay. He's tracking as we all were the UFC 259 main event. He starts out maybe early on when uh, when things might have been looking a little bit better for Israel Adesanya with a tweet, 11, 10 p.m. Can't wait to make this bitch eat his words. <laughs> what? Who? Is he playing video games or something? What, I don't What's he doing? Six minutes later at 11, 16, he, he tweets, yeah, never mind. That's not even worth my time. Two minutes later. At 11.18, he tweets, if you ever wrote me talking shit about Izzy beating me, slap yourself. And he's got a couple of memes. 1.04 a.m., he's still there. He's still tweeting. He says, the greatest striking MMA has ever seen, question mark. This shit needs to stop already. People so quick to jump on a hype train. And then he says, finally, 1.07 a.m., excuse me for enjoying this a little too much. These cartoon fans been talking crazy. And he includes a, uh, a photograph here of Jan Blahovich punching Israel Adesanya's, uh, Israel Adesanya uh, right in the face. So I guess this week I'm just saying, kind of seems like John Jones needs something on his plate. He might need something to to focus on. Maybe he Need needs something on the books? You're yeah. Yeah, we need to get something on the books for John Jones because he's up at one o'clock in the morning, hours, couple of hours after things wrapped up between Israel Adesanya and and Jan Blagovitz, still tweeting. Feel like he needs, uh, he's just got too much time, too much time on his hands right now. Maybe we need to yeah. get, uh, we need to figure out who he's fighting and uh, we need to get him back to business here because it's just too much tweeting. It is interesting for him to be like, oh, this all this crazy stuff needs to stop and everybody else is like we're in bed we're asleep we're not doing anything it's one o'clock in the damn morning yeah log off man yeah just saying just saying in any case that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast thanks for listening remember over at patreon.com slash co-main event we'll be there all week wednesday live chat thursday movie club friday power hour Come on over and join the team if you if you feel up for it. We have a lot of fun over there. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, the other thing I was going to just say is, did you notice when uh, Trevin Jones got out there to fight and he was flying the, the flag of Guam mm-hmm. uh, behind him on the cage? Have you have you taken a good look at Guam's flag because it is awesome? Uh, you know, I did a story for the Athletic about fighters from Guam. Uh, okay. But I, I don't. Let me, let me check out the flag again the, here real quick. The flag? Oh, yeah, is yeah. Just, it's got it like a awesome. blue flag with a red border, and then in the center, it's just like palm tree, sailboat, water, and little river, and it's just tranquil as shit, man. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if, you're, know if I've ever seen a flag that just makes me feel as instantly calm as yeah. this one. 
looks like the opposite of the Montana state flag that has the little seal in the, in the center that's all about mining and industry. <laughs> just the Guam flag just says, hey, relax. Yeah, hey, it can't be as important as all that. Yeah, Take her easy is what the Guam flag wants to communicate to you. Thanks, Guam flag. Thank you. <laughs>